You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm Tom Wally, uh, and I'm with Lizzie Banks. Hello, Lizzie. Hello, Tom. It's good to be back. I've got an apology to start with, Lizzie. Uh, I've got oh. an apology. So, we have this thing in my family where we're basically like bad luck sort of follows us around like calamitous bad luck right and then my wife married into the family and the sort of the curse seems to have inflicted her but I think the curse is now so strong that it's inflicting people that I speak to on a regular basis Lizzie so I I want to apologize for the bad luck that I'm inflicting on you you've had a bit of a tough time that explains it yeah I mean my things have gone downhill since we met Tom so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it happens to everyone. Just avoid me like the plague. Uh, Lizzie, so you, you, so well, let's fill people in what's been happening if they haven't, if they don't know. So you were due to do your first race back uh, at Valenciana. I was, yeah. So I was due to do my first race back um, last weekend, so Thursday to Sunday. And right now I should be in Ghent getting ready for opening weekend on Loop Pet Newsblad, which is one of my favourite races. I absolutely love it. But Sixth place in 2019, was it 2019? <laughs> 2020. 2020, our oh, time yeah. is gone for me. Famous, famous sixth place. No, it was it was a brilliant race. Um, that one, I absolutely loved it. It's just such a special race, such a great atmosphere. You know, that, that opening weekend, everybody getting going, that excitement in the peloton, um, it's just electric. But uh, yeah, just after team camp, I was due to start my first race and the afternoon before I tested positive for coronavirus, which as some people have pointed out, is better than testing positive for anything else. Um, but <laughs> that's, <a good> <laughs> that's probably the only silver lining <laughs> I could find. Um, and yeah, so then that was um, just over a week ago now. And since then, I was locked up in a tiny Spanish hotel room without a bike or anything or my sanity. Um, and thankfully, yesterday, I day before yesterday, I just returned back home after my quarantine. And now I'm back on the bike again. But I'm absolutely terrible <laughs> after a week in a tiny hotel, hotel room. Um, well, listen, Lizzie, at least you had Big Jets TV to watch in that hotel. That, was, that, that passed have- an afternoon, didn't it? Yeah, thank you to Storm Eunice for providing some excellent entertainment whilst I was locked up in quarantine. Um, but yeah, so it's meant that I'm, I'm also missing opening weekend. Um, although obviously I'm out of quarantine now, it, it would not have been sensible to race. I think I probably would have got dropped in the neutral section. Um, and so yeah, I'll be watching that from the TV. And yeah, it's it's frustrating, but it's also kind of one of those things and the philosophical side of me tries to say... Um, well, at some point it's inevitable and better now than right before the Tour de France. And at least now, um, although it is a big disruption and it is a huge frustration after, you know, having had a a really good winter, actually. Um, it's funny how when you plan your season, you, you do a whole plan for the year and you plan when you want to peak. Um, you plan out your calendar, when you think you're going to be best, when you think you're going to have a rest. And... There's always something, there's always something that goes wrong, especially in winter preparation. You get sick. I don't know. Auntie Jane comes to stay, whatever it is. And uh, I felt like winter went so smoothly, too smoothly. Nothing went wrong. And I knew that once I got into the races, I was still going to have that kind of race fitness to get. But I was kind of ahead of the schedule that I'd set myself. 
And so maybe maybe this is just one of those one of those things that had to go wrong before things can get started. So hopefully I will be back at Strada Bianca, which is a nice round year as it's where I crashed and sustained my concussion last year. Um but yeah, I mean I have only done one ride back since I was in quarantine and like I said, I was absolutely terrible. So hopefully things will improve over the next week. Um and hopefully I'll see everybody at Strada Bianca. How I mean, how was it um, the the COVID? I mean, were you were you really ill or mildly ill? And and you know how I mean, how long do you think it'll take you to sort of get to feel normal again? Um, uh, no idea how long it'll take me to feel normal again. I think ha- had I had a week off the bike and not really able to do any kind of exercise, really even move around at all. Um, I would definitely feel rough. Um, I have asthma as well, which was kind of my biggest concern. And I definitely felt it on the bike yesterday. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I was a bit sick. Um, things came on very quickly, but also subsided pretty quickly and I wasn't that unwell. So I just felt very tired. And I think it's one of those things that can affect, you know, it affects everybody completely differently. I've been very fortunate in how quickly I've come back to feeling normal off the bike um and really feeling normal on the bike will just kind of be how long is a piece of string there's there's one thing feeling normal and there's one thing being fit and you know a week off the bike is almost equivalent to losing three weeks of training um so I mean I wish I could say I felt like I did at the end of January but I definitely feel like I did in October right now um it was very much a kind of hollow legs hollow body feeling yesterday but that is normal and um i'm hoping in a few days time things will things will start to come around well you've spoken to me so inevitably things are going to go <laughs> massively downhill next week so i think maybe you need to quarantine from me actually funny Lizzie, you talk about you know getting back in competition i wanted to talk to you actually i am um, I, I, i'm getting back into competition a little bit and um i'm actually doing a duathlon so i'm gonna run and bike um I have you're on, no the, you're I... on the wrong podcast, Tom. <laughs> no, no, but I did want to ask you, actually, I'm going to ask you a, a couple of things about some of the new tech that you've uh, got in your kit for this season. But before I do, so I'm going to ride this duathlon, right? I need some, I've never, ever used clip-on bars. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to set up my bike like a TT. I'm not so going to get a TT. I've got a, got a pair you could have, Tom. Ride down to Nottingham and give them to you. What do I need to do with TT bars? What do I, I mean, do I need to, do, do you I need even, to spend do a lot of time in them? Put them? Where do I put them? Yeah, do I put them? <laughs> Do I put them on like bar ends? Is that how they work? Um, well, I mean, you know, TT bars are are a very cheap and very easy way to get a bit of free air. And so if you are doing something like a duathlon or a triathlon, it is such a good way to upgrade your bike without buying a whole new bike. Because, you know, a, a TT bike is blooming expensive and you can get a cheap pair of uh, TT clip-on bars for maybe 20 quid. Um, and it'll gain you a hell of a lot of watts. But the important thing is to train in that position. If you buy them and you put them on <laughs> in the week or the couple of days before your race, which I imagine a lot of people that's do. What I'm, Lizzie, you know that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and it's definitely what I did when I first got clip-on bars. Yeah. But you won't have got the posi- positional adaptation um, and your body won't have got used to, to kind of putting power out in that position. And so you might struggle to put a lot of power out. So, Tom, get your bars get them on clip onto the handlebars not anywhere else (laughs) get them on in advance and and practice with them and then uh, I'm sure you will find a huge benefit 
Cool. Well, before we move on, this episode is uh, it's sort of entitled Cycling in the Metaverse. And that's because there's been sort of a lot of developments recently with the metaverse, with things like cryptocurrency and NFTs. And they're all sort of now being brought into the cycling world. You might have heard of Bike Club and I'll be speaking to them later. But before we move on to that, um, I'm not going to ask you what you know about it, Lizzie. Cause well, like, like you might even us, have to explain what the metaverse is, Tom. Well, we're, listen, we'll get I'm there. I'm not even in the- sure. <laughs> We'll get there. Um, you and I don't live in the metaverse uh, quite yet, but maybe this maybe this podcast is being recorded in the metaverse. I don't know. Anyway, look, I'm getting too philosophical. I'm going too deep into the matrix. Uh, I want to talk to you about some of the new kit you've got because you were telling me about so there's a couple of innovations that you're using this year that because they're sort of hidden away, you know, they're they're invisible essentially. I didn't know about them. Um and I've not really read much about them. So I'm really interested. So first of all, tell me about what's in your helmet. Well, so I was on team camp before I was uh, locked up in a small Spanish room and it was brilliant actually. I was I, it really felt like we were a part of something new with my new team EF Education Tibco SVB and although it's a new team name, it is part of an old team, Tibco Silicon Valley Bank, which um, now Education First have also come on board as the third co-title sponsor. And um, all the partners have put in a lot more money to enable the team to go world tour and really make a huge step up. And we knew that there was going to be this huge step up. But once we were at team camp, we really felt it. We had all of those resources suddenly just the way everything was done was so different. And um, we had all the sponsors coming in and all well, we had quite a few of the sponsors coming in. We had quite a lot of Zoom calls for obvious reasons. Um, But it really felt incredibly special to be part of this new venture. Um, And whatever happens this year, I'm I'm so proud to be a part of it. And we're so fortunate. I, I kept pinching myself because we have such good equipment. The bikes, Cannondale, I absolutely love these bikes. I've ridden so many different frames over the years. And I mean, it's out and out the best bike I've ridden. It is so fast and so comfortable. Like some carbon race bikes, they are very stiff, but you really feel that road vibration. But I absolutely love this bike. But anyway, on to the technology. So... We had uh, a lot of calls with the different different partners and there were some really exciting things that I spotted. So POC, who are our helmet sponsor, they, are, they have created um, a medical ID chip in a helmet. So like you said, Tom, it's an invisible thing. And I was looking at the helmet and I noticed that there was kind of a, a Wi-Fi sign on it. And I didn't really know why until we had this call and all was revealed. And um, it has an NFC chip in it. So that is not the same as NFT, which That's, is a non-fungible <laughs> token, which Tom is going to be talking about later. But yeah. NFC is, is the technology that you use when you pay with your phone or contactless ah, right. near field communication. Oh, so I see. So when you're in a, like when you get your coffee, you just sort of dip your head and that, <laughs> and that pays for your coffee. No, but so what an innovation. Brilliant. It's not, it is not to pay for that coffee and cake at the coffee stop. But it is in case of emergency and uh, you can store emergency medical ID, um, name, blood type, all these sorts of things. And so POC worked with emergency services in Sweden to find out in, you know, that worst situation, what are the things that you would need? And so I found this fascinating, but but the one problem that I said to Pock was, okay, so this is an incredible, incredibly sensible technology and hopefully something that isn't going to be needed. But when you do need it, 
it's incredibly important. But how are the hospitals going to know that it's there? Because maybe we might know about it within the cycling world, but you don't know about it in the hospital world. And they said, well, the thing is with any new technology, you've got to start somewhere. And if you don't have it, then you can't create, a, you know, a way to access it. And so they are starting by putting the chips in the helmets, making that data available. They're already working with blue light services in Sweden. Um, and after that, it'll get kind of um, the education for blue light services across the world will will expand. And I think it's I think it's just such a cool and easy piece of technology and information. And it is rare that you're going to need it. But when you do need it, you need to access that information fast. And I think a couple of years ago, there was a spate of um, really horrible accidents in Girona where a lot of, uh, there was a number of riders and actually I think a director as well. Who That's right. Yeah, I've forgotten the name of who it was, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, Molly Weaver was one. There was um, there was definitely another one. Stephen, Stephen De Jong, who was a director, was also found by the side that's of the road. Right. That's right. That's who I was trying to think of, yeah. And... Um, in those situations, when somebody else finds you, you know, they have no idea who you are. I always ride with my bank card and my driving license. But if somebody finds me splattered on the road, they're not going to know that my driving license is hidden between the inner and the outer liner of my top tube bag on mm. my bike. Mm. So <laughs> it's actually really useful to have a way to identify you. And I think it's a, yeah, it's an interesting piece of technology that um, it's really good that somebody is starting to roll out and maybe in it'll be another couple of years until we actually see that implemented across medical settings. But the fact that they're starting it is um, pretty cool. That's really interesting. And um, and your tyres, well, your, say your tyres, what's in your tyres, Lizzie? Well, this is a bit of technology that we actually covered back in February 2020. So you heard it here first. Um, back then I was sponsored by Vittoria and I'm very happy to be sponsored by them again because they are, yeah, in my opinion, the best tyres. And, well, if you're into the world of mountain biking, you'll know about different sorts of tyre inserts, Cushcore, Rimpact, Vittoria. Now, they all make tyre inserts, which really the primary reason is to protect the rim. So when you are running low pressures, you can run even lower pressures and you can really hit that tyre and that rim against a rock without risking smashing the rim to pieces and so this is a tyre insert for the road which is the same thing but it has a slightly different function it really means that it's sort of a run flat system so you can put an insert in and say if you are riding Paris-Roubaix and you puncture then you're still able to roll on that tyre. And so I think for, for the racing situation, it provides a game changer because if you've got a tubular tyre and you puncture that on a Paris-Roubaix cobble, I mean, you, you're not going to be able to ride to the end of that sector to be able to get a new wheel. And I'm not saying that it's going to be easy to ride on an absolutely shredded tubeless tyre with a run-flat system in. But what that run-flat system does is it makes sure that that tubeless tyre stays on the bead and it doesn't roll off. And so that's that was really where the benefit came with mountain biking. It enabled mountain buyers, bikers to run lower and lower pressures without the risk of the tyre kind of burping off the wheels, both at really low pressures or when you're cornering. But there's another added benefit to that, and that is the ride feel. Now, I've not ridden 
the airliner personally yet, but we were riding tubeless at camp and tubeless felt so good. Now the airliner, as well as providing that kind of run flat system puncture protection, it also provides extra damping. So I think this, I, I, I sort of struggle in some ways to see how this fits for your average road user because I've heard that it's actually very difficult to get if you do have a kind of catastrophic tubeless puncture that means that you have to put a tube in it's actually very difficult to get the tire off because of the way that the airliner makes sure that the the bead the bead stays on the rim but if you are doing a gravel race, if you're doing a road race, anything like that, or if you use tubeless and puncture rarely, then you want to also incre increase the ride comfort. It could be a really, really useful thing. And I, I think that just in racing, I think in racing, I don't see why you, when you wouldn't use it. And I said to Vittoria, well, what about the rolling resistance? Does it decrease the rolling resistance? And they said, actually, having tested it, no. So I said, well, when wouldn't you use it? And they said, well, only when you're really trying to save weight, because obviously there is a weight penalty, but it's not that much. So yeah, pretty interesting piece of technology that if you're, if you're running, if you're off road on gravel, then yeah, you might want to think about because it, it could, it could save your rims. Well, Lizzie, I hope that neither of those technologies is a feature in your next race. So I don't want you, I don't want you to have a crash and bang your head, and I don't want you to get a puncture. I want this bad look. To I mean, Tom, be now you said that, I'm definitely going to shred my tires to pieces and land on my head. So, well, listen, I'm glad you've got them. Okay, well, listen, right, we're going to take a break now. But when we come back, we will be in the metaverse. The metaverse. <laughs> We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Tom Wally. Last time out, you heard me delve into the past for a look at the history of rally. This time out, we're diving headlong into the future. We're jacking into the mainframe, we're entering the matrix, we're taking a red pill, or is it a blue pill? We're logging into the Oasis as I take a look at cycling in the metaverse. 
The metaverse has been talked about inside tech companies for a long, long time. Much longer than you or I have been aware of the term. And when I say you or I, I mean those of us who don't work in tech. I know there are some smart listeners out there who are probably way ahead of us. For us simple folks, we probably first heard the term in the last year or so when the idea behind the metaverse and the potential for it started to be talked about in more public spaces and also Facebook changed their name. I've been interested in how cycling will look in the metaverse and it actually has a much longer history in that space than you may think. Now I'll explain more about what the metaverse actually is later. Actually, I'll get someone smarter than me to do it, so don't worry about that. But the metaverse is also a place where these somewhat abstract ideas of cryptocurrencies and NFTs can become much more concrete. And conveniently, and coincidentally, as I started seriously looking into putting this idea together, a cycling club that combined all of these elements was introduced to the world. Bike Club aims to be the world's largest cycling club built without borders and open to everyone. The first truly global, decentralised cycling club built to unite and serve cyclists everywhere. It aims to do this using NFTs and blockchain technology and they're well aware that there is some cynicism out there. A lot of them aren't doing it right. A lot of them are built by people that really are, you know, rug pulls are a, a big thing. So when someone says, you know, things like when Lambo, That term's become a bit of a meme. It refers to the time when cryptocurrency holders will become rich enough to afford the purchase of a Lamborghini. Now, I mentioned cynicism, and if any of you followed the Bike Club chat hosted by Matt Stevens, then you'll know exactly what I mean. We are sticking our heads above the parapet first. People are all, you know, and every time somebody tries to do something first, it's it's happened, it's happened throughout the time that I've been involved in cycling. Yeah, my, 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 my skin has, has got quite a bit thicker this week, this, this last week. <laughs> that was the voice of Rich Mitch, an artist who most of you will be familiar with. He's put together cover art for Rouleur and has worked for Team Sky, Strava, Asos and Shimano, to name a few. He's one of the team behind Bike Club. And that team also includes Tyler Benedict. Bike Club, essentially what we're building is the world's largest cycling club, the world's largest cycling community. And... It's, it's cool because I think what we're doing differently than how it's been done any way we've seen is that it really and truly is open to anyone. It's completely decentralized. I mean, yeah, you have like the four of us sort of spearheading it and like getting it off the ground, but it will. And is conversations are taking over, right? Like it's, it's run by the community. People can jump in and talk what they want. Um, what we really like about the way we're building this and what seems to resonate with people is that it's truly open to anyone in that we have almost 60 brand like major cycling brands supporting it now. And we've told every single one of them, say, look, you know, like, like, let's say FSA is on board, right? FSA makes cockpits. Easton makes cockpits. If, you know, zip came in and just wanted to start talking about their products or get into the community and have a conversation, that's fine. Right? Like we're not going to stop them and say, well, hold up, you're not part of this. Right? So it's brand agnostic. It's open to everybody. And ultimately, we think it will kind of take on a life of its own, and it's super cool. And there's no, there's no advertising. We're not capturing people's information, you know, and trying to sell against it. We're not, um, I don't know. It, it's just different, right? So why now? What has suddenly become possible to allow for a project like this to exist? 
before we talk about the NFT stuff, because it is, you know, the NFT is one part of this project for sure. And the technology with that is amazing. But I think the funny thing is the technology to do what we're building right now, what the community is running on Discord, to, you know, and that's been around for years. I mean, gamers have used it for years and years. Hey, we use it. We use it on the cycling podcast. You know, if we do our sort of weekend rides on Zwift, you know, we, we hop on a Discord, you know, so we can chat. It's, uh, it's, our, it's our race radio. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's a little bit surprising is that we started with this idea of an NFT, but it's everything else that we've been building that is becoming so powerful because it's free and it's we're just leveraging technology that's out there in that regard to create the community and create the channels for people to chat. And the, the nice thing with Discord is you can customize it and add functionality and this, that and the other. And it's so low cost to add that stuff that, you know, we're just putting our own money into it to build this thing. That's cool. So it's a bike club. I mean, uh, it's sort of at the moment it seems to exist virtually, but I guess it's going to be, well, we should say IRL because that's the term, isn't it? We, <laughs> we're talk, if we're being techie, right? So this is going to exist in real life as well. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of really cool real world activations planned with a lot of the brand partners. I mean, just two off the top of my head, you know, so at Sea Otter, we'll partner up with Sage Cycles and have a little party at their booth. And there'll be plenty of other brands that will we'll pull into that. And, you know, we may do multiple events at Sea Otter and just hang out, meet, throw out some swag and, um, you know, just kind of bring the brands and the athletes and the, the riders together to hang out, you know, because that's I think that's one of the things that we want to do is we want to provide this access point for regular riders everywhere to be able to really chat with the people in the industry, the athletes, the influencers, the brands. I mentioned before that I'm really not smart enough to explain all of this stuff, but luckily I know people who can. Luke Franks is someone I met a while back, and he's the man I go to to make sense of the metaverse. He's also had a pretty interesting career. So my background is as a presenter in kind of radio and TV, um, mostly with kind of Gen Z audience or, or kind of teen, younger audience. So uh, over, over the last kind of 10 years, I've watched a lot of that audience obviously shift more to online and more recently into these kind of virtual worlds, which we'll talk about, which is kind of making up the future of the metaverse. Luke has appeared on CBBC presenting Pet School, on CITV presenting Scrambled. He also hosted the Radio 1 podcast Worst Dates and he played Raptor in the Sky series I Hate Susie. But importantly for us, he's also the host of the podcast Welcome to the Metaverse and he owns some NFT racing chickens, which I'm gutted I didn't ask him about. Luke will pop up throughout this episode as a kind of oracle explaining some of the terms used. The first one we need to get our heads around is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Basically, this is a sort of certificate of ownership of a digital asset. It makes use of a blockchain, which is a type of digital ledger that's decentralized, so the entries cannot be changed. But Luke can explain the blockchain much better than I can. So it is basically a public ledger, so a record of, of transactions and ownership um, that is constantly updated and also... Um, distributed all around the world. So like uh, lots of people are hosting this record in various different locations on different computers. So to ever change the record is basically impossible because you'd have to convince every single person who's also seen what's happened to all agree that that didn't happen and then change the record, which just doesn't happen. There's no incentive to do that. It'd be very expensive to do that and everything else. So so yeah, that's kind of at its, at its most basic Thing, but what it enables is is um, you know a trustless relationship with anyone over the world, across the world. Like if you want to 
I, I don't need to know who you are, but if you have an NFT collection and I think you're cool, um, and I've got uh, Ethereum on, on that network, um, you, it will basically swap those assets for me directly. I don't need to go through a bank or a credit card company and I will execute and I know that's going to happen and it's going to be provable to everybody. So it creates this basically value layer to the internet um, that is hosted by users. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's pretty fundamental. So how does that work for Bike Club? The NFT is essentially, it's like having your membership card for Rafa Cycle Club or the Cycle Club near where I, or here in, you know, Cycle Club here in Norwich or where I used to live in Sussex, you know, someone like the Lewis Wanderers or Brighton Mitre or someone like that. So you've got your membership card and that then you're in the club. Technology that blockchain allows is fascinating because I think there's a lot of, Man, every day, something new, you know, and that's what gets me so excited about this. So every day we're literally like, ooh, wait, now we can do this, you know, and so we just keep adding ideas for Bike Club. So it goes deep, but top level, what what the NFT side of it allows us to do is create special opportunities for holders. And I want to I want to back up for a second and say that a lot of the stuff we originally planned that would be for holders only, we're actually just going to drop that into the Discord and make it available for everybody. So the vast majority of people will be able to do and benefit from Bike Club without ever holding an NFT. The people who buy one will be able to do some really cool stuff where there's gated access to like premium perks. And there's, you know, for instance, we want to have like a job board where the industry can post jobs for bike positions at different companies, whatever, right? Um, And we thought about, well, that'd be a nice perk for a holder. But then we're like, you know, everybody should have access to that. So let's make it where the holders maybe can get some job training. We can do something special and above and beyond that takes real work and resources to create. And the most fun thing, though, is we're working on some sort of reward system where you basically get rewarded for riding and you can accrue points. And because your membership card is kind of like your login and ID for that, it's easy to track and verify you know, your ownership of this avatar, this thing, and then you earn points on your account and that those points could be redeemed for, you know, bike club merchandise, part, products from brand partners. I mean, who knows? Like the, what we do with that down the road is the sky's the limit, really. And what the technology allows us to do with the NFT is hide traits within the NFTs that act as multipliers for these games that we'll play these contests. And I'll give you an example. You know, you'll have like any NFT, you'll have the traits that you see, you know, so with ours, we have like 300 plus different traits. So we have a ton of backgrounds, a ton of jersey colors, helmets, sunglasses, hairstyles, everything, right? So out of 10,000 NFTs, none of them will look the same. Everyone's unique. But what you won't see are these hidden traits, like each one will be assigned a skill. So it could be climbing or endurance or sprinting, et cetera, et cetera. Within the gamification, we can apply a multiplier. So let's say that a challenge one week is ride the most, get the most elevation gain. So let's say somebody beats you by like 10 meters, but you've got a climber NFT that you get a 5% bonus. Well, you just won because of the one that you held. So it does, it, it makes it fun. It also gives you some strategy in that, well, hey, maybe I need to own one of every kind of trait in my little riding club, my own little personal team, so that I can better compete on all these other things. It just makes it fun. 
Now, Web3 is a term you're going to hear a lot going forward, and a lot of the tech behind Bike Club will solidify around this latest iteration of the internet. Here's Luke Franks again. So Web3 is like the... It's what the metaverse will kind of be built on, is how people refer to it. So if you think about, like, the different kind of iterations or versions of the internet is how people frame it. So kind of Web1, you can think of as sort of the read-only version of the internet where we could go on websites, but we could just kind of read the information and, and that's what happened. We can't really do anything more on it. And then Web2 was when uh, we could begin to kind of uh, uh, pull stuff together. So like Wikipedia is probably a good Web2 example where people all over the world could contribute and add stuff to this like pool of information and social media, right? We could kind of uh, read and write uh, the internet and connect with each other in that way. And Web3 is really the value layer. So the invention of, of blockchain and NFTs uh, allow people to have uh, digital ownership and value of assets. So like the, a good way to explain NFTs, I think, or at least like why they can have value is, is to use like a simple example, like art, right? So if you think about like a, a, a valuable art piece in the normal physical world, so say the Mona Lisa, for example, right? And you think about like, why is that actually a, a valuable uh, piece of art and it's it's not really the the materials aren't particularly valuable so like the canvas wasn't expensive or the paint dye wasn't expensive but the reasons why why it is it are because we can prove who created it right leonardo da vinci and, and his, his whole story as a you know as a as an artist uh you can also prove the scarcity of the piece there's only one mona lisa in the world if there were a hundred thousand you know they'd be worth less and you can also prove you know who owns it now so it's in the louvre in paris so there's kind of three criteria, like proving the creator, uh, the scarcity and the current ownership in the uh, physical world is, is why that piece is actually valuable. So blockchain technology with, with NFTs um, and Bitcoin in, in the same technology allow the same criteria for, for digital items. So we can now prove um, that you can have the original digital item, uh, you can be the owner and that is scarce and unique. And that basically, you know, it's pretty fundamentally game changing to every think digital on the internet whether that's kind of music or that's art um, or anything and then you can also attach lots of interesting utility to those digital tokens so in in the, uh, your example like um, you know nfts can unlock various different things for a community of cyclists in, in these projects so yeah it's uh, interesting Cycling podcast and service course listeners, I now stand before you to make a plea. For a little while, I'm going to look at how other sports are embracing cryptocurrency, NFTs, Web3 and the metaverse. And I want you to come with me and I promise that we'll return to cycling shortly. Tim Magnell is the CEO of Capital Block. His company works with sport franchises, helping them to launch their own NFT campaigns. He's working with giants of Turkish football Galatasaray, with Poland's Legia Warsaw, and with a handful of English Premier League clubs. And by the time this podcast is released, he'll probably be ready to name another partnership. We spoke about a recent global sporting event that might have been a watershed when it comes to sports relationship to cryptocurrency. I think the Super Bowl, Super Bowl brought it to an audience that was unobtainable in any other way. I mean, you look at the commercials that happened there. You had FTX, you had Crypto.com, you had Coinbase, you had one of the, one of the brands, I forget the name, but they were actually had an image of one of the board Ape Yacht Clubs in there. So I think it was definitely a tipping point to really bring it to the masses. The adoption 
I don't think uh, it's still we have a long way to go from an adoption point of view, but I think it will now put it in the forefront of everyone's minds, 100%. I think the trouble and the difficulty for sports clubs at the moment is there is an unrealistic expectation of the revenue that they will be be driving and that they will earn from this in the immediate short term. Um, I think if you look at the Bored Ape Yacht Clubs, the Crypto Punks, the Cool Cats, which are these art projects that have driven hundreds of millions in, in revenue. I think Bored Apes has, has crossed a billion in sales now, and you can buy one of them for $180 a year ago, and the, now the lowest price is 320,000. There's a, and that's getting all of the press. So there's a big misconception that a football club, be it Man United, Arsenal, or a Legia Warsaw in Poland, you go from a billion fans to a hundred thousand fans. All of them think I'm going to make this type of money. And that is an unrealistic expectation because you need to educate your fan base. And if you're Man United with a billion fans around the world, yes, you do an NFT drop, you will sell out because you've got those numbers and you've got a billion. But you then do more and more without educating your fans. There's not going to be a community and you are eventually not going to start selling out. So that's where I think football clubs and most sports clubs are going wrong in terms of they need to educate and they need to look at this for the next three years four years, five years, which our agency capital block work with them. We don't work for anyone minimum than three years because we see that vision there. Um, So if they start moving away and thinking an art NFT project is completely different to a sports NFT project because it's for us and our vision, sports NFTs are about fan engagement. Therefore, you've got to put your fan first and treat them as a fan, not as a customer. The way we work as an agency is we're not a platform. We're not a marketplace. We are an agency that really want and are the voice of reason in this bizarre world that has been thrust upon all of us and we kind of go in and we I was fascinated talking to him and I am with a lot of these people in the same way I'm fascinated by people who find religion once they have this willingness to accept something and let it into their lives it seems to have a profound effect that's why a lot of the bitcoin adopters the nft adopters have been described as being evangelical but It's also an effect that I'm wary of and I do remain healthily sceptical when it comes to this world. But what Tim was saying about fans using NFTs to become stakeholders in their clubs really points to the key misconception around the technology. Tim laid it out. It's not about an investment that's going to make you rich. Well, not in this case. It's about fan engagement. And this made me wonder, could a cycling team leverage NFTs to engage their fan base? Now, I know not all teams have what you'd call a fan base, but maybe some of their riders do. We're talking small numbers here, but as we've discussed, it's not about engaging a huge number of people, certainly at this moment in time. So could a cycling team put together an NFT scheme that helped fund their team? Could the technology allow teams to liberate themselves of the current sponsorship model? Could it help increase the longevity of the teams and the job security of those they employ? Who knows? But you can see now why this interests me. 
Let's leave cycling once more, well, sort of. In order to further understand the ways that these new technologies could transform sport, I spoke to Lionel Burney. I've mentioned the theme of this episode to Lionel, and he told me about a trip he took. It was a cycling trip that saw him go from not Watford to Bedford to watch a football match with cycling photographer Simon Gill. Now, you might be thinking, how does Lionel's indulgence of his love of non-league football relate to cycling and the metaverse? Well, the big story is that Peter McCormack is a, a Bitcoin investor, um, a, a, an evangelist almost for Bitcoin. And I've listened, and a podcaster as well. Yeah, and a podcaster. And I've listened to a few of his podcast appearances where he's talked about um, how Bitcoin is going to change absolutely everything. And his dream, his vision, is to take Bedford FC past Bedford Town, their neighbours, a couple of divisions, and then onwards and upwards and onwards and upwards, all the way up to the Premier League. And he has said right from the outset, this this vision is going to be laughed at, we're going to be ridiculed, everyone's going to say it's impossible, but we're going to do it. Um, but the thing is that he has... Uh, change the name or intends to change the name when the takeover is finalised at the end of this season they're going to be called Real Bedford and the the badge is now a B the Bitcoin logo B um, B for Bedford B for Bitcoin me personally I don't have any Bitcoins I don't really understand it I certainly don't want to risk my real money <laughs> And that makes me a kind of conservative late adopter. I'm certain that these early adopters who've already made money from it and have been very successful, um, you know, I don't doubt that at all. I, I just don't understand it. But I do know that, yes, they intend to make uh, one or more of their players the first players in the UK to be paid in Bitcoin. So whether that means they can you know, pay their rent or their mortgage or go to the supermarket, uh, that's where it all gets a bit hazy for me. It's interesting stuff. I also asked Lionel about cryptocurrencies and their relationship with cycling. Well, I could argue that it's already been, hasn't it? And not terribly successfully. I mean, the ins and outs of the next hash story are remarkable. And, uh, well, Kate Wagner was really, uh, she was an early adopter of that story because she was looking into that around the start of last year's Tour de France and had sniffed out that there had been some kind of difficulty with... uh, with, with getting the real world money, I guess. And I, I suppose that adds to my sense that there's so much uncertainty with, with how... Ah, the how next hash debacle. In case you don't remember how that played out, let's go back and look at the story. I was actually the person who broke that story first, which was crazy because it was kind of my first ever... I call it my Woodward and Bernstein moment. This is cycling journalist and sometimes cycling podcast host Kate Wagner. What happened was, is I was at the Tour de France, obviously it was my first Tour de France, and they announced, like, Quebec Next Hash announced that it was Next Hash. I was like, what the hell is Next Hash? So I Googled it, and I was like, okay, <laughs> this is this seems very vague. Um, so I immediately was kind of suspicious of it because, uh, not to get into the weeds here, but uh, I in my life as a design person, I have dealt with a lot of, um, using, for example, licensed vector art and uh, templates for pamphlets and stuff like that. And so I immediately recognized that this website was uh, from a template, first of all, from just from my design eye. I just knew that like this is like just too generic. I've definitely seen templates that look just like this. Like this is, 
it felt almost like a phishing scam kind of it's just like this is made to look very legit it's like hmm, okay and so i i ended up i was just like okay and then <laughs> what happened was is as you know i spent a lot of time covering slovenians uh and i have a lot of slovenian friends and one of my slovenian friends messaged me being <laughs> and saying you know this woman in slovenia she is she's bad news uh and i was like oh really what do you mean uh because i was in slovenian group chat <laughs> and this came up in slovenian group chats so who is anna bencic and they were they were people in the chat who will remain anonymous like sending me these articles from seal and uh air tv and uh a few other places Basically, she's a, a chronic scammer. <laughs> Slovenia was one of the first countries. Uh, it was actually very common for Slovenia. It's not specifically Eastern European. It's really Southern European or Southeastern European. Uh, but it is in one of the that that region of, of the world where Bitcoin is becoming very huge. And Slovenia was one of the countries that was very at first very open to, to Bitcoin. In fact, they they constructed an actual monument to Bitcoin in Slovenia. Like I think in a roundabout or something. So a physical statue of a Bitcoin. Uh, they really thought it was going to be the savior to the Balkan economy or whatever. The first ever Bitcoin uh, or crypto involvement in cycling and even in Slovenian cycling, uh, which it happened in first, let's be clear, uh, was uh, Ljubljana Gusto Zarum, which is now Ljubljana Gusto Santik, which is the, under the parent organization of uh, Kade Rog, which is the organization that ran Ale uh, BTC Ljubljana, now runs Pogi Team, runs uh, and runs Ljubljana Gusto Santik. And so in 2018, uh, well, first there was this, uh, this company called Zarum, and Zarum claimed to be gold-backed cryptocurrency, which like they love to do that. They love to be like, this is a gold standard or whatever. <laughs> and so what happened with Zarum was it basically fell apart. It became very clear that A, this was not actually backed by anything and B, that uh, it was basically insolvent. And so luckily, Ljubljana Gusto, Santic was able to bring on Santic as a, as a sponsor and didn't succumb to... Uh, Zaram being so sketchy, but that was like the first red flag, really, that something was going on with Slovenian crypto and sports. And everyone, it wasn't really reported on. Um, there was a, only a couple of, of stories that came to press in in Seoul and in at RTV and a few other in uh, Delo or uh, the Slovenian press in general. And then what happened after that was. <laughs> It was there was another cryptocurrency scheme in Slovenia that ended up that was very heavily involved in um, building luxury resorts in Croatia. And the Croatian seaside is kind of uh, one of the big cultural touchstones of the Balkans. So everyone goes to vacation down there. It's very beautiful. And that fell through and just a bunch of people lost their money. So the Slovenian government started to become very skeptical of, of Bitcoin and there was there started to be uh, so so next hash was really trying to orient itself as being in Britain or being from all these different. They said that they claimed that they were from 12 different. They had offices in 12 different countries, which I'm pretty sure none of them were real. <laughs> I actually don't think any of them were real. I wrote this story in the Tour de France press room before the Grand Depart. 
And we had to sit on it at Cycling News for at least, I want to say a week because it had to go through legal, um, which is my first time dealing with legal. Uh, so that was, it ended up, we didn't have to end up retracting anything. So that was good. But yeah, it was, it was kind of tense because this, it turned when it turned out we had to deal with legal, my feeling was, oh, wow, this is maybe actually a story. Uh Okay. Uh, and actually, so the day of the, of the uh, first stage of the tour, um, I went to the, the start, which not a lot of people went to the start that day because it was a zoo. And I went to the start asking to talk to Doug Ryder. And I emailed the press officer for Quebec saying, I want to talk to Doug, blah, blah, blah. And they said, okay. And so I went there and I waited and I waited and he didn't show up. So they didn't comment. And then we put the story out and yeah, it was, it was nuts. <laughs> so my understanding is, is that they really had no idea what they were getting into because Doug told cycling tips that, that they found next hash through a sports marketing company. And, uh, originally next hash was going to try and to get into formula one, but that never materialized probably because they didn't actually have the money to cycling very different from formula one, obviously in terms of sponsorship commitment. So they saw those big grand overtures, and I think that they thought that, yeah, this obviously is something. Crypto uh, is becoming more and more a thing in sports. I think that for someone like Doug, it seems pretty sound. And no offense, but I think that a lot of people just kind of latch on to the next technological thing. No one really learns lessons from the dot-com bubble or whatever. This is essentially the pets.com of its era. Do you remember Pets.com? It's the number one example of the dot-com bubble in action. A company that was eye-wateringly overvalued. It began operations in 1998 and by 2000 it had liquidated, despite massive investment from the likes of Amazon. I think that in Doug's defense, he saw what was a technological innovation that offered some kind of stability riding the wave of money that crypto is bringing. Uh, whether the money is funny money or real money is still up for debate, but... I mean, in his defense, they were desperate for a sponsor. You know, it was it was a really kind of frantic search. And I kind of, well, I think that obviously they should have done more due diligence because it didn't take me that long as a journalist to figure out what was going on here. And I think, honestly, that they turned kind of a blind eye to it. They just They just needed money and that was it. And you can't really disparage them for that. I mean, you can, but... It's understandable in a way. I think the loss of Quebeca is felt in, in the Peloton. And even though most of their guys found new homes, it was kind of a really likable team. Not only because they were working for a charity, which ostensibly did lots of good in the world, but also because that the team had a kind of ragtag characteristic that was very likable. I, I mean, in the Giro, uh, in the 2020... Uh, 2021 Giro, they had a lot of great moments, uh, like when Mauro Schmidt won the gravel stage, or when, uh, I mean, Victor Campanarts just kind of going for it every single day and eventually winning a stage, and he's just like ecstatic and crying and happy. Those were really great moments for that team, and it, it really looked like they were coming on the up, and that they collapsed afterwards is really sad. Let's head back now inside the metaverse. With the growth in online cycling, I can clearly see ways in which the sport could exist as part of the metaverse. 
one thing and really the only thing that is going to drive the growth of the sport in that world is money and there is serious money to be made as luke franks explains so in Fortnite, um, for example like they have live gigs in there so travis scott the rapper did a show and 12.3 million uh, users attended this show as uh, as avatars and he reportedly netted about 20 million dollars from these shows which was like the equivalent of doing 10 back-to-back physical arena shows in a row so like the scale of this global kind of move to to um, virtual worlds is happening and that's that's kind of really if, if you want to define the metaverse. so how could bike clubs nfts interact with the wider metaverse it's like a facebook metaverse right like facebook's meta whatever they are now is building their closed metaverse that they can control in every way right and then you have zwift which is controlling what happens in Zwift and so forth and so on. Um, the broader term metaverse from a crypto standpoint and what people are looking at are these decentralized ones like Sandbox, Decentraland, et cetera. You know, Leapin is doing some really cool stuff with a very slow build, painfully slow build, unfortunately. Um, but what these allow is they allow other people to come in and build experiences, build environments, build reward systems and tokens and, and use nfts to create collectibles and wearables and avatars and this that and the other and ultimately that's where it's all going to head and i'm i'm sure there's other platforms that we are riding today have some inkling of a strategy or are working on something they'd be foolish not to um so yeah there's certainly going to be more of that i don't think we'll ever get to a ready player one level of that's all everybody does because we still like going outside like until it's a nuclear wasteland i think we're going to all try and ride outside more than we ride inside but you know the 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 way that these metaverses can gamify and reward people for being in there um it certainly gives people a reason to hop on when they might otherwise just sit around on the couch or something Now, you may think that the metaverse is still some way away and that cycling in it is even further afield. But when you think about what the metaverse really is at its core, platforms like Zwift are also, platforms like Zwift are essentially already their own metaverses. To explore further how NFTs like those minted by Bike Club could work in a world like theirs, I spoke to Zwift's lead designer, Wes Salmon. I first heard of the metaverse when I started playing Second Life, which is a very old virtual uh, world game where kind of anything goes. You can build anything you want. You can be anything you want. Uh, and you had all of these different uh, systems in the game to allow groups of people to organize around experiences. Uh, and there was no structure to it in a lot of ways. And that's what made it so interesting and great. Whereas with Zwift, uh, I think we're also similar in that metaverse uh, ideal where we get people together to share an experience. Um, so most of the people that are talking about the metaverse these days are talking about it from a more theoretical as opposed to an actual. Like if you think about someone saying, well, Google is the internet. Well, no, it's a lot of the internet. A lot of people use Google for the internet, but it's not necessarily the internet. Same is true with most metaverses. Like saying Zwift is a metaverse of its own. It's true, uh, but it's not the metaverse. So when you get people together to share an experience, um, that's where you really start to see these things make sense. Then you start adding other aspects other than mouse and keyboard. 
you start adding virtual reality or AR, you start adding, adding some kind of physical aspect um, like Zwift does or other fitness games do. That's when you start sharing more than just a mouse keyboard clicking experience. You start sharing a real experience. You add voice, you add sensory information about the world that you've created around you with other people. That's when you start to create this idea that I'm sharing a virtual space with these people doing something cool. Uh, as opposed to I'm on the keyboard looking at a screen talking about something that we're sharing together. And that's that crossover, I think, that Zwift does really well, because with our avatar system where you see yourself and you see other people around you and you know that you're pushing 400 watts, they're pushing 400 watts, you know they're not clicking a keyboard. You know they're literally sweating. Their heart rate's 170. They're killing it just like you're killing it. And that shared physical experience in a virtual world is something that really sets apart fitness games other than other racing games. Like take Forza Horizon or uh, Grand Theft Auto or GTA. Um, they, those kind of games where you could be in a real world course uh, and you could be in a real city driving around real roads, but you're still behind a keyboard or you're behind a, a controller. You're not necessarily sweating. You're not necessarily having a high heart rate. You're not putting out physical exertion, not sharing that exertion with other people. So there's definitely a, a different level of engagement that these users experience in these virtual fitness worlds. Well, I think that's why something like Zwift is is closer to that immersive reality because of all because of that that sheer weight, that sheer feeling that you get from from doing these things, you know, the physical side of things. But I think when you, when you talk about stuff like the metaverse, right? So, you know, I think for a lot of us, it was when Facebook sort of changed changed to Meta, right? And they are, you know, Zwift is a big beast, right? But it's not Google, it's not Facebook. And when these people sort of make an announcement like that, do you suddenly have to sort of retreat to some kind of cave and meditate and sort of say, what does this mean for me? <laughs> Not really. No, the way I see Facebook's attempt at kind of to corralling the metaverse is they want to be the glue that holds together experiences. I don't think they want to be building all of these different virtual worlds that allow people to have all these different experiences across the gaming and, and, and fitness culture. I think what they want to do is they want to be that connective tissue so that if I were to, for instance, be in Zwift and I'm on my bike and I'm riding around Zwift, what's to say that I can't ride my bike into another game or another world that's created by someone else, maybe some Facebook company, maybe some other company. They want that connection to happen in Facebook's metaverse. I don't think they want to be the ones building it. Hmm. But they obviously they have this kind of um, this vision of a, a fully immersive world. So it, really, what they're drawing on is is virtual reality. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I mean, well, is is virtual reality? I mean, as as someone as with, do you have to sort of respond to that and think, well, you know, how do we then incorporate virtual reality into what we're already doing? Uh, kind of, yeah. So it's funny. We we actually had, I think it was probably five or six years ago. We had a version of Zwift that we were showing off at bike shops that was VR based. Uh, and we would put the headset on you uh, and we would sit you on the bike and we would have a person stand on each side of you and someone in the front so that we could hold you because you were likely going to lean too far and start to fall off the bike. You were going to pull on the handlebars because you felt like you were falling backwards. Um, but the actual experience was amazing because you could look down, see your legs moving. You could look over your shoulder and see people around you. It was one of those immersion experiences that was amazing, but it was also so real um, that it was, it was just a very odd experience. So when we think about different ways that we could have immersion get better for Zwift, it's probably not going to be full VR because there's just so many pitfalls with that type of a situation, but augmented reality, whether it be sensory data from other systems, whether it be lighting or sound or vibrations, um, or 
there's a whole bunch of different ways you could make uh, uh, something more immersive. Uh, and those are definitely things we're always looking at. That's really interesting because I, you know, because obviously, you know, you know, Facebook or, or Meta, or whatever, make these sort of announcements and people like me just assume, well, because they've said so, like everything has to be now full VR. And obviously I know full well that if I was buying an expensive VR rig, I don't necessarily want to be sweating the hell through it. You know what I mean? Every day. Like, I yep. don't, do I? Well, if you ask a VR company what the solution is for a metaverse, they're going to tell you it's VR. And that's the problem. Uh, so we, we definitely have an issue where there's a certain subset of users who are going to want to go into a virtual world, kind of like Ready Player One, put on their headset, sit in their Barca lounger, and experience some cool stuff with other people, whether it's being at a concert uh, or being at a, at a place they could never visit in real life. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why someone would want to put on a headset and just kind of veg in something that is created for them. For physical activities, though, it's a lot different. Like for physical activities, a lot of the immersion isn't about what you're seeing in your eyes. It's what you're feeling with your body. And with Zwift, again, even though your avatar is just pixels on the screen, knowing that you push that avatar for the last 45 minutes at 170 beats per minute at you know your, your highest watt output ever, that creates a chemical reaction in your body. The same way that your brain creates a chemical reaction when you see something in a virtual reality headset that it can't quite compute because all the other information it's getting about your body movement doesn't match. But you get this feeling like like falling, for instance, if you're ever in VR and you fall, you feel like you're falling. Your brain thinks, wait, I'm seeing falling. I'm not feeling falling, but I'm Dude, seeing I, it. I get that with regular video games these days. <laughs> I, I genuinely. Like... Yeah. So, so the, the idea that that VR is the only solution, I, I think, is a little short sighted. But again, if you ask a VR company what the solution is, they're going to lean into VR. If you ask other companies that do augmented reality, they'll tell you that, no, VR is too sweaty or are too uh, like enclosed. You need something that's going to be meshing your real world that you can quickly identify with and your brain understands with things from the virtual world. Uh, so there's definitely some aspect of uh, crossover between VR and AR, but I still think that physical experience uh, is going to be a part of this as well. That's really interesting. And obviously, one of the other, this is, this is an, an episode sort of entitled Cycling in the Metaverse. And Obviously, it's just, it's just something that's been sort of on my mind. There's been a few sort of innovations recently, and there's some new bike clubs that are embracing blockchain technology, for instance. Mm -hmm. And obviously, so blockchain's been around a while. I'm pretty au fait with what that is. Uh, I got my head around crypto pretty early. But then, uh, again, it feels like five minutes ago that NFTs were mentioned. And the way NFTs are being explained to me and being used beyond just owning something, that you know, they are keys to, to unlock experiences or access and stuff like that and um with people sort of wanting to have these uh, unique avatars now avatar culture is very very big in zwift does zwift have to meet things like nfts uh not at the current moment no nfts are so new and it's such a a, a market that is evolving so rapidly uh that it doesn't really require zwift to think too much about how we play in that space yet it's something that will probably settle over the next couple of years where people realize that NFTs today, as they're being used to share virtual art or own virtual art in some meaningful way, isn't necessarily the best use of the technology. It's a great example use of the technology, uh, but it's not something that people are going to be gravitating towards long term over the next decade or so. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. 
Yes, thanks as ever to Science in Sport for their continued support of all the work we do here at the Cycling Podcast. They also support me in my personal life. When I'm on the turbo, I'm always using Science in Sport gels. And I've got two young kids, so every now and again, when I'm up in the middle of the night and I'm feeling a bit low, I have reached for a gel or a bar. So they support childcare as well. Science in Sport is fantastic. If you need any Science in Sport goodies, and of course you do, then you can get 25% off your next order. Just go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. Well, Lizzie, has that answered any of your questions about what an NFT is, what the metaverse is, how crypto works? Uh, not really. <laughs> I mean, my research for this episode, I actually had to Google what is Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty I, basic Google, isn't it? I thought, right, let's, let's start with the basics. Let's start with Bitcoin. And surely if I start to understand Bitcoin, I will start to understand the metaverse nfts bike club and everything blockchains block oh i don't don't um, don't talk about blockchain and i i just couldn't get my head around it i did quite a lot of research and i just simply couldn't understand and i guess well that's part of it isn't it it's it's for some people and it's not for others and i wonder whether i'll get left behind it's just very early, like with everything. It is, I mean, you know, it's just very early. I mean, I think there was quite a lot of resistance to things like Zwift early mm-hmm. on. You know, why do I want to ride? And then suddenly it becomes, you know, ubiquitous. So it is, it, look, the cat's out of the bag with this one. It's 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 coming. And as with all these sort of new techs, people sort of figure out how to, how to use them best. There's going to be a, a bit of a scattergun approach, I think, at the moment, with a lot of people using this technology in different ways. And then we'll finally sort of work out the most effective way that it is. But I mean, I'm interested in the fact that there's a lot of misconceptions about it. You know, a lot of people are thinking about NFTs as I'll buy this and then I'll sell it and then I'll get rich. That's the kind of thing. But what a lot of people like Bike Club are talking about is that NFTs are no different to a membership card. They're just simply a different type. They're a membership card that you use in virtual spaces. So, yeah, interesting stuff. I know that the guys at Bike Club have had a had a lot of flack and there's a lot of cynics out there, but I'm really genuinely interested to see how this stuff plays out uh, in future and how it starts to interact with the sort of the metaverses of things like Zwift. Um, So it's interesting stuff. Um, But Lizzie, I'm going to let you go. I hope to see you racing in the real world at Strada. (laughs) So good luck there. That's a hard first race back, Lizzie. Well, I mean, anything's going to be a hard first race back after a year out. But um, the way I see it is I'm there to do a job for a team, for the team, for as long as I possibly can. And um, once I blew up, blow up, just got to get my way to the finish. And there's only one way to get fitter. And that is by, yeah, absolutely shredding yourself in the races. So I'll get there eventually. It'll probably take a little bit longer now than I would have liked. But that's life. And after, after Strada, what, what's next after that then? Um, fast. Well, I'm not sure if the, if things will change now. Um, already, um, we've had one rider who's unfortunately Lauren Stevens out with um, a shoulder injury after Setman of Valenciana. Uh, but I'm down to race Nocker Corsa, then Ghent Vevelgem, uh, Twarsdorf Flandern, and Flanders, which I've never raced before. Actually, any of those races I've never raced before. So um, it's exciting. I definitely hoped to 
be in a different place in my fitness by the time I got to Flanders than where I will be now. But you just got to take it as it comes and uh, I'll be ready for the Tour de France. <laughs> All right, Lizzie, well, listen, I will see you next month. So uh, best of luck and I hope the curse is lifted. Thank you, Tom. I'll see you somewhere in the metaverse. Awesome.